Hi, this is Mark Steiner, and welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food, farming, and the future of our environment. Here on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on Marvel Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM on the Eastern Shore. Today we're talking about urban farming and beekeeping in Baltimore. Later in the hour, we meet Dane Nestor, who's a beekeeper at Oak Hill Honey in Baltimore. But first, it's a visit to Greener Garden Urban Farm, a farm in northeast Baltimore, not far from here at Morgan State University. It's an amazing project run by two farmers, Warren and Lavette Blue. Warren is a Vietnam veteran. They built this incredible garden, feeding many people here in Baltimore, that is a hidden gem. And I spoke with them, along with Willie Flowers, who's the executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, last month. You're going to really enjoy this conversation. It's a gem that we can replicate everywhere. Willie, let me ask you this question. First of all, let me, let me get you to start with, this with Willie Flowers. And, and if you can just um, tell us, you're the one who called and said, I need to come out here, right? So talk about why and, and introduce the folks who are visiting. Well, I mean, the uh, entire city, anybody who is a part of the local food movement in Baltimore or anywhere, you know, they showcase the people producing food and the blues here. They produce everything you need um, pretty much year-round. And when I first came here, I was just blown away by it, and I wanted to uh, share it with you based on what your interest is. But also... He's collaborated with us, with our effort to try to produce food at our farmer's market and to um, the people in our CSA. So it's just, he's the real deal when it comes to um, food production. So introduce yourselves. You are? I'm LeVette Blue. I'm Warren Blue. So I I was just, when I pulled up, I saw the sign outside. And I I pulled up, but then I walked back here. Um, Here we are in Baltimore City. And this incredible garden behind your house. I'm just so. What is this? How, <laughs> tell us where we are. We're we're on we're at 5623 McLean Boulevard, um, down the street from Northern High School. Three blocks from Morgan, you come to Belvedere, you come down Woodburn, and then you come up McLean. And if you get to Northern Parkway, you've gone too far. How many acres do you have here growing? Uh, about an acre, about an acre, maybe an acre and a quarter. And our neighbors have kindly let us use their yard this year. If you look over, you can see. And so it's pretty big. And it's surrounded by houses, so nobody knows we're here. We're the best-kept secret here in Maryland. So tell me how this began. How did you, how did you start this farm, and where did it begin? Well, when we brought this property 30 years ago, I was looking for something large enough to put in a small garden. And that following, we moved in in September, that following spring, I ordered a tiller, Troy built. I've never used a tiller in my life. So I had to put it together, (laughs) word by word. (laughs) Then I had to figure out how to operate it. And we saw a little small garden, maybe about 15 feet wide, maybe about 30 feet long. Then the next year we went further, and the next year went further. Two years later, I brought another Troy Bill Teller, eight horsepower, and we turned all the land over here. Matter of fact, when we moved here, this land was like a dump from all the other people here. They just dumped everything out there. So all this out here was cleaned by me. I had to clean it all by hand, cut down the trees, do everything. 
and we just wanted to grow something. And the more I grew, the more I liked it, the more I grew, the more I liked it. And the more I kept reading about meat, I got away from meat. So you don't eat meat? I don't eat meat. I got away, yeah, certain fish we eat. I got away from the meat because of what they was putting on the vegetables to feed the meat, the herbicides, the pesticides, and... I said, man, I'm not, I, don't, I don't need that for my body, you know. I never get sick. I've never been sick a day in my life. I only go to the doctor once a year. I don't catch colds, flus, or nothing, you know. But uh, we just eat fresh veggies, and that's what we eat all year long, you know. We got two freezers. When we sell enough, we start to freeze enough so we can have all year. And, and that's what we do, you know. We started out um, with a small two-by-four garden, and... Uh, one of our plants got a disease on it, so we called the uh, Maryland Extension Service. And these two little old ladies came out, <laughs> holding each other up. And they looked, and they looked at him, and they were the one that told him, they said, what, use Epsom salt? Yeah, they told us to use Epsom salt, and that would bring the um, pepper black back to, um, the green peppers back to good health, which it did. And she looked at us as they were exiting, and they said, and you need to go to class, the Master Gardener class. So that following September, we went to Master Gardening class, and we took the whole course under John Tronfield, and we actually graduated and got a certificate. So we're um, not the oldest, but close to one of the oldest Master Gardeners here in Maryland, in Baltimore City. How many years have you been farming this land? About 25 years. Farming it like we're doing now, I guess I've been doing it for the last eight years. Since I, I used to be a paint contractor. And we increased it more this year with a piece of property adjacent to us. Uh, well, two properties adjacent to us. And we're trying to buy one of the pieces of the property. Most people think these are our neighbors' backyards that we use. All this property that we grow on is all ours. We acquired it piece by piece by piece. And as it came up for sale, we bought it. Came up for sale, we bought it. And that's how we did. You know, I had one neighbor years ago told the people that was they were selling the house to her, said, yeah, squatters just come in and grow food. <laughs> Two days later, I showed the man my deed. You know, he said, oh, yeah, you do own that, don't you? I said, I think so. <laughs> that was it. I mean, but I love what I'm doing. I used to love painting, putting up wallpaper and all of that. Uh, I'm a very... I'm a somewhat shy person. I don't like to do a lot of talking, but uh, when I got into the garden, it was something that I came to find out was a natural. And we went to classes and different classes. Last year, we went to nutrient management class. Last year, we went to, um, I mean, yeah, this year, we went to a greenhouse class. I just put a greenhouse up this year in March. Never put a greenhouse up before in my life. I did it all by myself, my wife's help. I had a fellow help me put the top on, and I just, I love every bit of it. I mean, people from the Merlin Extension Service, along with Willie Flowers and the Park Heights Alliance Association, they have brought people over to help us for the weed, for the harvest, and so they could learn different things as they was doing. Matter of fact, that's how we met Sasha Jones. She came over and started working in the garden, and this year she's the food justice up at the Park Heights, at the Pimlico uh, a farmer's market. This is, to me, it's not a labor of work, it's a labor of life, because working this, just to me, this helps extend my life more and more and more, you know, so 
I just, I just love it. It's peaceful. I don't care what kind of problems you have. When you go out in that garden and you start working that garden, you can pray, you can talk to yourself, you can work problems out, and all the stress that you have that's built up during the day, once you get in that garden and you start working with nature, it's gone. That, that, that stress is gone. It, it really makes a big difference. And, and both of you, I mean, you're, you both grew up in the city, right? No. I actually, I was born here, but I was raised in part in Virginia. He's actually from Virginia, but he came from a seaport town. Okay. Shall I tell the joke about the tobacco? No. no. Oh, okay. Tell me the joke. You got to tell the joke. Yeah, you said now you have to tell. What's the joke? <laughs> okay. He was he was taking me home to see my, my, my mom. My mom lives in Virginia now. And he kept saying, oh, my God, this was years ago. He said, look at all those collard greens. They're so tall and pretty. And I'm looking left and right and I'm trying to say collard greens, collard greens. And I'm looking and looking. So finally I said, well, the next time we pay some collard greens, you show them to me. And he said, here we go right there. See that feel and feel? I said, sweetheart, that's not collard greens. He said, well, what is it? I said, it's tobacco. <laughs> So he said, I think I really need to go and and look at this some more. He said, tobacco, yeah, we need to really, you know. And I said, yeah, but they it does, the tobacco and Georgia Jets, because Georgia Jets gets really, really tall. Well, most of them now, they used to. Now, I don't think they get as tall because of different hybrids and things like that. But they used to get really, really tall. They get five, six feet tall. And you just go pull the leaves off. Well, the tobacco looks the same. So... It, it, you couldn't really tell unless, you know, you really knew. And I knew because I used to be on the farm. So so you had some experience on the farm growing up? Not that much. <laughs> just, in the, just in the vegetable field. But yeah, it's some experience, yeah. With the vegetables, the cows, the hogs, the horse. What's amazing to me, and I'm just sort of describe this place, is that um, here we are and we have this land, you're growing all this food. I'll we'll get to some questions about that. But this is all organic? All organic. There's no chemicals on this property at all. We use leaves that we put back into the ground. I have people that bring me selective leaves. We shred paper all year and save it. We put that back into the ground. I collect coffee grounds. Uh, all of that goes back into the ground. Anything that's from nature goes back to nature, and that's how we grow. We don't we don't believe in using any herb. We, we save all our compost. We drain it at the end of the year to make tea out of it, the compost tea. We have had that tested through the lab. And uh, it's certified all organic. And I was even told by the people, Dr. Rohr, that I have to use four gallons of water to a gallon of that. That's how potent it is. You know, so it's, it's really... Uh, it's really organic, and, and it's, it's nothing out there at all, you know. Uh, we feel comfortable of eating anything out of our garden when I pick. Matter of fact, I pick food and just eat it while I'm out there working. Turnips, small beets, sweet potato, anything. I just wipe it off and I eat it, you know. My wife tell me, you should wash it. I said, I don't need to wash it. It's good, you know, so I just eat. That's, but I wasn't raised on a farm. I was raised down in, uh, in Hampton, Virginia. I worked for my cousin on a seafood factory, and we went to different farms here and there, but I had no interest in raising no food. And when I saw this piece, I probably was looking for a house to buy. 
I said, yeah, well, this is what we need, something to do something with, you know, and what's going to just be for us? Mainly flowers. And then we now nah, let's try this and try that. We started growing, and I found out, like I said, it was a natural thing, and we just went with it. And I just, I love every bit of it. I, I, I'm really amazed, uh, just because I've never seen anything like this in the middle of the city before, this way, and especially being done by just the two of you as a couple doing this. So, But you've, this has expanded from just growing for yourselves into into something a little larger. Well, we don't, We used to donate quite a bit to uh, Big Daddy, and we last year we donated one to um, some, well, we actually cooked a bunch of food, and, and along with um, the Liberian Association, um, went down to Karis House, is that it? Yeah, Karis House. And um, we just set up a big dinner for them. They did, and we just donated quite a bit of food for them and stuff like that. And now we just, we're looking for another place because we're starting to have a lot of excess of food. And um, I thought about the Maryland food bank, but there are other places that also, like churches and different things that do soup kitchens, that I would be more interested in donating some food and what have you not. But I saw a sign out front that you have this big sign out front that, do you, you, you go to farmers markets? People come here to buy vegetables. How's it work? Well, yes, we go to farmers markets. We work the Pimlico Farmers Market. Next year we'll be in Druid Hill. We also work a farmers market on Fridays at the Zader Senior Center on Rice-Sustan Road in Wally. And uh, we went there last year, and this year they're just waiting for us to come back so we can go back up there again and serve them some more, you know. And um, Matter of fact, they, we're looking at expanding next year because they have a plot across the street from them on Wiley that we're looking at taking our tractors up there and working it. They're going to have it in fenced and everything, and we're going to go up there and we're going to grow food, and we're going to have farmers markets there on Fridays and Saturdays with the blessing of the Lord and everything goes straight. That's, that's what we plan on doing. We have to submit a proposal, and it has to go to... Um, their members and see whether or not they'll approve us coming there and doing that. Which would help because it's it's kind of a food desert up there. And that would be something that they would have that's their own. It's a big plot and it's very it's in a nice area, you know, nice central area that people could really get to and actually have fresh food. And I, I'm curious, how many, I know you started this out to feed yourselves because you just didn't want to change your way, but how many people do you think you feed out of the food you grow here? I guess from here, from our house, I probably look at maybe about a couple of hundred people. At the farmer's market, I have no idea over the courses of weeks that we serve up there. And my guess is the food you sell is probably less expensive than the food level that people sell it for. I, you know, I try to be comparable with what's at the market and also what's at the supermarket. Um, we realize that, yes, this is extra income for us, and it takes um, money to run it. But, and of course, we would love to have a profit. We haven't been able to really do that yet. But I'm also um, recognizing that, it's not doing us any good if we outprice ourselves to the point where nobody can afford to buy it. So we try to stay reasonable. And sometimes I think we're a lot cheaper than others. And um, 
I think when people come, they don't look at the fact that we don't add chemicals and stuff. So we lose quite a bit sometimes and because it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And you can taste the difference. It's a big difference. So the people that do come and buy things, they are repeated customers. And some come from across town. When I say across town, I mean they come from the Rice Town area. They come from they come Pikesville. They come they come from all different areas. And they buy food because they love the taste. Um, I grow early, we grow heirloom uh, tomatoes. This year we tried uh, Cherokee purple, but we grow the Pink Ladies or the brandy wine, and they people love them. One of the things that struck me about the Park Heights garden that Willie Flowers and Sasha are working on is that it's unlike other CSAs in that it really is built for the people in the community and not built for selling to restaurants and, and high-class, you know, upper-class market, right? And so, and I look at this, and I, I wonder what you think just practically and kind of philosophically about if there were more places like this, what it would mean for the people in the city. Well, I think it would be where we would have a lot. Well, I would say starting with the children. I think that they will be uh, more healthier, uh, it would be less McDonald's for them to run to. Uh, not only do we sell produce, we give people different uh, recipes. Uh, we tell people how to prepare different foods that never have used those different things that, that they may purchase. We give samples to people so they can take home and try. But it would help if more places were like this, even though people sold it. It will help the people to get more healthier food into the household, which now a lot of areas just, I mean, they don't have the supermarkets in the city. Places are closing down, and what do open up is not, not to me, wholesome food for them. I mean, it's just food, you know, but when they got to be shipped and shipped and shipped and repackaged and all of that, it's not, it's not good healthy food, you know, so it's, it's. That's just what I like about here. You know, we we sell people food that's raised organically, although we can't use that word because it belongs to the government. <laughs> but <laughs> that's right. but we let people know it's raised naturally, but we do not sell our food at the organic prices. We sell it at the same price that conventional food is sold or below because we know a lot of people can't afford it, but we know people want a lot of food. So we try to give them what they want, what they need, try to meet them at their needs and their pocketbooks, you know. Yeah. And we also uh, introduced different types. This year, what did we introduce? Last year it was the Dino or Tunson or they, they had different names for it, Italian kale, which is very, very good. It has a lot of minerals and vitamins and stuff in it. And so we introduced that. And actually, um, that was a big seller. We got people requesting it. We didn't grow a lot last year, so we grew a lot more this year. Yeah, we grew kohlrabi this year. It's, it's some of it's white, some of it's purple. Uh, it's like a sweet turnip. You can peel it, you can eat it raw, or you can steam it like turnips, you can cook the leaves just like turnip greens. It's it's a dish, it's, it's a vegetable that you can eat the whole thing, you know. It's just like squash. We grow squash sometimes maybe two feet long because we tell people how to cut them in half, scoop them out, stuff them, 
with whatever they want, put them in the oven and bake it. When they take it out, when they cut it, they got one meal in one. They don't have to do a lot of preparation and this, that, and other, you know. And it's, it freezes well. It freezes well. You can take it out. You can wrap, When you freeze it, you wrap it in foil. You put it in the freezer. And when you take it out, you just stick it in the oven and heat it up. And once it comes out, you sprinkle some cheese on it, which is added protein. And you just eat it. And it's delicious. Um, actually, my mom, she's 88. And it's a dish. Every time I go there, it's like, are you going to fix this for us? Bring a big squash. <laughs> so... I'm like, I know when I get there, I'm going to have to bring a big squash. And I know I'm going to have to fix that dish. And then I know I'm going to fix two because one we're going to eat and the other one, her and my aunt are going to split it up into little small sections because they don't eat much. And they're going to have that throughout the winter. Last year, they said they kept saying, bring some tomatoes. We don't have tomatoes. I want some tomatoes. So I took a lot of things. I took um, the squash, the eggplant, and everything down to them. And they were fussing and fussing. Oh, we can't possibly eat this much. And I said, it's going to be a bad winter. You need to put this food up. You need to put up as much food as you can. And they did. And this summer... They said, thank you, thank you. We just finally ate the last little bit of tomatoes or squash or something. But it was a bad winter. It was a very bad winter. And they were thankful that we brought all this food down to them. They weren't thankful they had to put it up and freeze it or whatever. But they were thankful that they had it because uh, for days on end, they were stuck in the house. They had ice storms. They had snow. And they were stuck in. They couldn't get out. So this food was prepared and cooked. So. And that's a lesson, it seems to me, that we could use all across the city. I mean, you know, you're talking about your parents in Virginia, but it's, it's I mean, this, the idea that we could actually create something where people could begin to feed themselves like you're doing. Yes, and that's, that's one of the things that we like, you know. That's why I like, I like working with Willie Flowers and the association because of the things that they do in the Park Ice area to educate people of food to, to make it a better environment for them, you know. And we try to do the same thing here. We are, we're in the process of trying to get a grant to build six more greenhouses on our property so that we can use it to grow food all year long. Plus, we want to bring in the people from the 4-H Club through the University of Maryland Extension Service, Naima Jenkins, and people with Willie Flowers and his association. So it can give kids first-hand experience on growing food, harvesting food, what goes into having good food and why it's important, you know. A lot of kids eat out of a can. They don't know real food or whole food. They just they just eat whatever's thrown there. They don't know what it is, you know. But They actually don't have any idea where the food comes from, you know. Our, our great-grandchildren, they were out here, and they, they, they look at this as normal. To them, this is normal because, oh, okay, Granny, um, I want some spinach. So they run out there. Uh, cook, and, and, you know, at one point they were like, cook us some spinach every day. I was like, wait a minute now. Granny's not going to cook you spinach every day. And then they said, well, well, what's this? And I said, it's greens. Just eat it. But the point was that they had learned to eat it. So it did. It wasn't unusual for them to, to eat this. They didn't care what it was. We actually have a callaloo, which is a Jamaican green. We have um, 
water greens, which is from, uh, it's an African green from Liberia. Liberia. Um, we have bitter ball. They call it different names, but that's from Liberia. We have Liberian friends. And so um, this right here is the water greens, as you can see right there. This is something different there that they do with green rice. They make it and they chop it up. It's kind of spicy. It's called, well, they have several different names for it, but I tried that this year. Something different. So we're, we're into trying to incorporate different types of things. Um, this year we grew some, what is it, um, Russian kale? Yeah, Russian. Russian kale. Just to try to introduce it into the community so that they know that there are more kale, different types of kale available than curly kale. And um, so these are the things we just try to put out there. If they like it, if we get a good response, we grow more of it. So it's available so that they know that they can have different things here. I would like to see the city itself get more involved in helping people that are growing foods in Baltimore City, uh, regardless if it's for a profit or it's for just a community or whatever. Uh, they have a system where you can get a water grant Starts in April, runs through till November. But it, it just takes so long for it to come through. I mean, it, they just come out, they put in a new pipe. The money is there for them to pay for it, but a lot of people's not aware of it. You know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it. Been there and applied. We haven't seen or heard of anything since, you know. But it's there, and we know that it works because we had people tell us about it that it works for them. And they just, I think they said they need to do more, you know. They got a lot of vacant lots. They're not going to build nothing on a lot of these lots. Uh, uh, even people that's taking their own lots are doing it. If they're doing it for a community garden, I feel the city should be involved uh, because it's taxpayers' money that they're using to help the taxpayers in that community. Some of the people in that community might not be a taxpayer, so we know that they really need help. So they should put out a little bit more so they could help those people instead of waiting for, you know, like like us and all the other people to do it out of their pocket. You know, they can't, water's not, water's not going to break Baltimore City. <laughs> it all come out of Susquehanna, damn, it's not going to kill them. Just give it to the people, let them use it so, to grow the food. So, let me explain, so, so explain it again. So what would, what would that mean, for the city to lay pipe? What does that mean? How would that work? I don't know how it works, but when I talk to the lady in downtown on Fed Street, they sent out the waterworks department, and they locate wherever the pipe is at. And I guess they would have to dig in the hook up for run uh, like a line for you where you can run a hose to it so you can use it for your garden. And it's all free. I mean, the water lasts. You can use as much water as you want from April until November and for to keep your food growing and everything else, you know. Because of climate change and all, you get a good rain to spell, and all of a sudden you don't get no rain at all. A lot of foods with a lot of farmers that sit there and dry up. If you're not on the eastern shore with big pumps where you can just sprinkle water any time you feel like it. So what you're describing in a way is you could create, you think, with very little money or less money than most people would think, like almost an urban irrigation system to keep things going. That's what, that's yes. what you're talking about. Yes, yes, exactly. that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know. But if they just put the water there for the people, I'm pretty sure that the people can afford the hoses to run to do the things that they need to do. But a lot of these city farmers, city farm plots that they have for for the for community gardens, 
it's kind of hard for the people to get the water there because there's only one single pipe, it's a low pressure, and it just don't add enough water to the thing that the people need, you know. If you put a filter on it, for they get out all of the chemicals that you need to get out to grow the food with, the water is so low it'll take you that much more water to grow with, you know. So they need to have larger pipes for these gardeners so that they can put the filter on it that is needed to take out the, of the chemicals that they put in that will help the food to grow a lot better. That's Warren Blue. You also heard from Lovette Blue. They're urban farmers who own the Greener Garden Urban Farm in Northeast Baltimore. Earlier in the hour, you heard Willie Flowers, Executive Director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. We have to take a very brief break, but don't go away. When we return, we'll hear the rest of this conversation and also talk about urban beekeeping with Dane Nestor of Oak Hill Honey. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites here on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Today we're talking about urban farming and beekeeping in Baltimore. Let's get right back to my conversation with Warren and Lavette Blue at their farm, the Greener Garden Urban Farm in Northeast Baltimore. And this is very inspiring. I mean, I, I, I had no idea what I was going to walk into when I walked here, so I drove up. I saw the apartments. I'm going, where's Willie taking me? <laughs> and it looks like just a regular residence. And you don't, you think it's a small garden until you walk back here. You don't really see it as being as large as it is because it's surrounded by houses, which is a good thing in a way because yeah. our neighbors watch out for us. And your neighbors love this. I'm sure they love this. Um, yeah, they do. They, it, it, you know, if nothing else, to see us work ourselves crazy out here. <laughs> You said 4-H. I forget who said 4-H. You did. So, so, so the idea of creating urban 4-H clubs for young people to get involved with, to change the whole kind of psychology and consciousness, I mean, that's, that's what you're talking about. Right, right. And I've, I've talked to this with Naima Jenkins of the Maryland Extension Service on Rice and Sound Road, and her supervisor have also talked to with Mr. Willie Flowers. Because you have a lot of kids that have nothing to do. So we can bring those kids here maybe three times a week at the time that we're getting ready to plant or either at the time we get ready to work the soil. They can see that the, the nuisance going into the soil and be explained to them the purpose of it. Be here when, when their plants are going into the ground. Uh, we also have a greenhouse that we sort all our seedlings in. They can come to learn how to start that seed, that plant, from a seed. So when they sit down at the table, they knew exactly where it came from, how it was started, the whole process that it went through. Uh, they can't go to McDonald's unless they got a million dollars for to go to classes to learn how to do that hamburger all the way up to the time they throw it out there to you. You know, so it's it's... I, I really think, and we think that it's a very educational thing. It's very worthwhile, and I have a, I have a school teacher, an school teacher that's writing a grant for me, to try to, to to try to receive the monies that we need to do that. We could do it our own, but it takes us another four or five years to do it. And within that time, you got you got grants that's given out from the Department of Agriculture, Soil Conservation, and everybody else. You know. Life Bridge Association and all, all, all funds. So it's, 
This money's there. It's just that they getting to people to release the money to the people that's doing something worthwhile that's going to benefit the neighborhood. That's the main thing. My main thing is no chemicals on foods give you a better life, give you a longer life, and it's cheaper <laughs> to buy good food than to pay a doctor bill. <laughs> My comment and what I would like to see is children to be educated as to where the food comes from, what goes into preparing the food before it gets even in a can, gets to McDonald's or Burger King or any of those, to know where it comes from and to know how the climate affects it, how the weather affects how it grows, how it tastes, um, so that they can be aware that there is a climate change and that it's not only affecting you know, some some cities and all, it's affecting all of us. And when it starts to affect your food production, like in California where they had the extreme drought and they had to switch over to something else, these are the things that they have to be aware of. And in that way, as these kids come up and they grow, they can see, okay, we have to make a change. We We have to become involved. We have to do something. And in that way, the more people that are aware of it and that are willing to put the time into it, the better environment we'll have, the more um, we'll be able to sustain ourselves. We won't be totally dependent on somewhere else to get the things that we need because we've had a huge flood and that whole area has been washed out. If you listen to the news, you hear that all the time. So, or you hear that this has happened or that happened, and so that means food is being imported. We don't know what they put in their food. Some of the stuff that I read about what they put in the food and before it gets here, I don't even want to, to bother with it. And so this is my concept. If we teach the children, then they'll be able to understand. And hopefully, because now farmers, the older farmers are dying out. We're not young. So somebody has to take over. Somebody has to continue this, you know. And this is uh, nationwide. It's, you know, they need to teach the people, the young people, so that when they get older and they grow up and they go to school, they can take up agriculture. They can, you know, be willing to take time to say, okay, I think I want to do a farm. I think I want to be a farmer. You know, you can change the name, you know, or whatever, but... They, we always will need farmers. We always will. Not big businesses with farm, you know, doing farming and putting a lot of chemicals in it, but just small farmers like us that are sustaining the environment. And, and you know, one of the things that you all are saying here, and it's really making me think about and looking at what is around us here, is that we talked a bit about the 4-H clubs a moment ago, but this is also, when you think about it, and I'll use this word, revolutionary. Revolutionary in the sense that if this model was replicated across the city, you could change the nature of people's health, what they eat, the control they have over their own lives, with the amount of vacant land in this town. It could really happen because, I mean, people could just see what you have. That could be a model for the entire city. Yes, you know, and <laughs> I guess more people would be surprised being in the city, you know. Uh, uh, it's not like out in the county, uh, just wide open spaces in the city where these people live at. I mean, we have had two tours here with the Maryland Extension Service, and there must have been about 50 
about 52 people that come, came through. And uh, they brought them in on a bus so they could walk and look. And they were really surprised of what type of land that we had here, how much of land and what we were growing. And uh, Mr. Willie looked at it last year, Mr. Flowers, and he was he was amazed when he first saw it. And then when he grew up, he was like, man, I can't believe this, you know. Yeah, you know, like every other week he was over here. I need some kale, you know. Busy man, haven't seen him much this year, you know, but I'm telling you, every other week he was here for some kale, even on a Saturday in a jogging outfit, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good food, you know. And this is this is really what you know. This is really what we want to do besides making a profit. We want to let the people be educated to learn about good food. We want the kids to be educated because as they grow up, they're gonna to have to raise a family, and if you don't know what you're doing when you're being raised. If not being taught to you, how can you teach to yours? And, and it's going to be a downward slope for kids as it is now because a lot of young parents don't cook. That's why the kids are in McDonald's and Burger King's and the 7-Elevens eating fast food. The more they can learn, the more they can sustain themselves in life, then they have something that they can teach to their kids and they can pass on. Because you have a lot of young kids out here, 25 years old, they couldn't cook nothing. Right. You know, nothing. You know, they just can't cook. You know, they don't. They don't know the value of the food. First of all, the value of the food, they don't know. You know, so that's 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 the main thing. You know, yeah. You got me eating here. <laughs> we did a, a trade for Mark, so that he could see what's in our garden. And what we have here, and I'll explain real quick, is zucchini squash, regular squash, sweet peppers, cucumbers, carrots, and the celery, which is not like the celery you taste in the store when you finish that. Okay. This is something that we grew here. This is the yellow zucchini here that we have. And then this is the kohlrabi that you taste it. That tastes like a sweet kind of and then the cherry tomatoes so sweet that are extremely sweet and underneath is lettuce that came out of our garden and not iceberg lettuce we don't grow iceberg lettuce (laughs) (laughs) no we grow all different kind of lettuce and it's actually very good for you and i'm fascinated because they've come up with red lettuce and i'm really fascinated by it so we keep drying it the plants that we grow from our greenhouse, the seeds, all of the seeds primarily are organic seeds. And we deal with seeding companies that primarily deal with organic products and whatnot, you know. And so we're not just getting the seed from somewhere, putting it in, growing it up, and then saying, oh, well, we didn't put no chemicals on it. But what was in the seed to start with? And this is what have happened to our bees is because... It's the seeds that the people have taken from the plants. It was chemicals in the ground. It came up with the flower, with the bush. When the seed came back again, they grew in the same chemicals still in their seed. And people still eat it, and they want to know why. The bees are out there because the bees have gotten a hold of it. They have died off because they, most of them don't even go back to the colony. They die before they get back to the colony, you know. And the ones that do go back to the colony, they spread it. And they, they have studies on it. So it's, it's, 
it's a, a, a it's it's a I mean it's a revolving door. You know, if I mean, if you start it, you you are you are going to continue it. It's it's no breaking it. You know, so we've so we didn't stay away from you know regular seed and commercial seeds. The bees. I grow lavender because the bees love it. Actually, I can't get to my lavender because most of the time the bees are there. But the honey, little honey bees love it, and the bumblebees love it. And I can tell the what's going on with the honeybee population based on what I see in my lavender. So it makes a difference. I'm, I'm just. I really am overwhelmed, this whole place. Just the possibilities. I mean, I when I first went to Park Heights, when Willie told me about the farm they were doing, Willie Flowers, and we, I saw that, I said to Willie, I've been saying to everybody, that what they're doing in Park Heights is a model for the entire nation that no one's really doing that I know of, which is starting a CSA, starting a farm for working people and not the wealthy and not restaurants, to feed people and then when Willie texted me to you gotta I have to come over here to meet the blues and see their farm then this is an extension of that in a bigger way a a lesson about what we can do with the land and the resources that we have and how we can feed because you always think of we I mean the, the larger world always thinks of this kind of work as being for just white people and just for the wealthy you know what I'm saying just people can afford it and I think it's important that this is, could change the whole power dynamic in terms of what people see, what they eat, and how they can get it. I and mean, this is this is just this is beautiful. <laughs> this is amazing. I keep saying it over and over again. I'm just I'm just just I, I, for me it's, it's not just because you all are doing it, but what lesson this is for the rest of us about what could happen. You all have given a, a brand new definition to far, to urban farming. Yeah. I had no idea what to expect when I walked through, walked through this, and I. I uh, Thought we'd come here to a little garden and walk, go home. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little garden. It's a, it's a farmette. We a call farmette. it a farmette, yeah. I had a joke with my doctor, and he said, you need to exercise. And I said, okay, how about if uh, every day I walk up and down the aisle, and I have a basket, and I'm picking squash, and I'm putting it in, and I'm picking the basket up and moving it down the aisle. He said, I think that's enough exercise. <laughs> I think that's That was Lavette Blue. You also heard Warren Blue, the farmers at the Greener Garden Urban Farm in Baltimore. Earlier this year, former Soundbites intern Maggie Dyer visited Oak Hill Honey, a small urban apiary that raises bees in two locations in Baltimore, the compound and the Hidden Harvest Farm. Maggie interviewed beekeeper, artist, and educator Dane Nestor about the project and about raising bees in Baltimore. Honey is a, a rendering of a location. I think of it like a map, like a map that you could taste. So depending on what um, kind of flowers a certain region has, and every region has different flowers, um, every region's flowers um, you know, also can be slightly different depending on rainfall and sunny days and stuff like that, like the amount of blossoms on a tulip poplar tree could be stronger in some areas and all of those things those nectar sources are what give honey its profile and so if you think of locations only having certain nectar sources you can see how every location would be different and therefore every location has a sort of a different 
flavor or a different, I guess we'll call it a profile, you know. Um, and what makes, I think, Oak Hill really interesting is because Baltimore is incredibly interesting. Cities are really interesting because, you know, you think of sort of the parks here that do have native trees, um, that have stands of, of just lots of native trees, and, and then they also have, um, you have uh, the, the city canopy, which for, you know, a hundred years or more, they've been, oh, I don't know if it goes back a hundred years, but I know it goes back a long time of them planting trees. I mean, they name streets after trees here. Uh, Linden Avenue, which, I, I mean, we have tons of those Linden, Basswood, Tilia trees here in Baltimore, and they don't grow out in the woods in the same way. Um, sugar maples, other strange thing that, things they've planted um, all through the, the city. Um, also, they, they get into the honey. And the other thing that's really interesting is these, we have so many vacant lots, and I don't mean this as like a good thing or whatever, it's just, it just right now, I mean, that's the way it is, and there's a lot of disturbed sites. By like that, I mean just like, you know, rocky backfill where, uh, you know, a home had been bulldozed or something, and you have Elianthus and Polonia and um, trees from all over the world that are, you know, that are really, um, we call it, I guess, volunteers is the right word for them rather than weeds or something but they they set in quick and they take root and they they're also nectar sources that you're not going to get necessarily in some some county or some rural area that's doing you know big monoculture on a on a orange farm or something like that you know and so we've got a lot of cool characters and we also have these great community gardens and backyard gardens and all of these things are are kind of playing into um, what's going into Oak Hill honey and so it's just a really honest foraged map. I mean, these things, this honey, is it's gathered. You know, it's something like 20,000 trips to flowers for one teaspoon of honey. That's kind of what I mean on that profile where I, I talk about honey tasting different because it does. And that's why I also mean it's not better here in Baltimore necessarily, but it is, it's different. And, um, and honey's not really better anywhere. It's always just honest. And I think that's what's great about this. If you think about it as a local product, it's site-specific. You know, where I mean, I guess tomatoes are going to be different in New York City than they are grown here in Baltimore. But the honey is honestly different. It's different here than Philly. It's different here than L.A., than Detroit. Unfortunately, a lot of the honey you get at the grocery store, and this is, like, really, really, really important, is not... It's all been blended. It's all been packed. It rarely has a, even a single beekeeper. I mean, it can be from up to five countries at a time. And so, um, and when you get clover honey, a lot of times that's coming from, well, you have no idea where it's coming from. And so I personally would never buy honey at a grocery store. And then, to be honest, I wouldn't buy it at most farmer's markets. I mean, you go to the, and this might get me in a little bit of trouble, but it's the truth. You go to most farmer's markets here, and you see orange blossom honey, and you see, I don't know, blueberry, you see these monoculture honeys, and you're like, you know, what the hell? Like, where do they get this? Like, where do you find these orange farms out in Maryland? And, and then, you know, if you ask, like, you know, is this your honey? I mean, legally, they can say yes, because a packing producer is the same thing. So a lot of times you'll, you'll, and you'll go into Whole Foods, and you'll see, like, good things from around here, and They'll advertise something as local honey, but it's all just packed. And beekeepers are basically allowed to buy whatever honey they want, package it, and then say it's their own. And so a lot of times, like, unless you're getting it, you know, from a friend and you're able to look at, like, a comb like this, 
and see a bee yard, I would be really skeptical of, of really think of, of, of getting honey from somewhere and being like, this is from Baltimore, Maryland, or this is from, I mean, even Maryland at that, you know? So um, I think honey in, in retail and in grocery stores has a really long way to go. Um, even though I compare it to like wine in the, you know, all honey is different depending on which region it comes from. It's not treated that way in retail at all. And in fact, it's, it's, ne- it's hardly ever raw. It's, you know, it's been transported thousands of miles. It's actually treated quite poorly considering like what a, you know, special thing it is and, and how hard it is to make, you know. Have you found your hives impacted by like global warming or have you found if you had any trouble with um, um, like keeping your hives alive have you had has that impacted you at all um i don't i'm sure global warming's doing something <laughs> i mean like what but i mean this year i experienced a shorter i mean i guess the bees experienced um a shorter nectar flow in the spring i mean i hear now though that some of these some trees some things came out late this year so some of my friends who are keeping bees have seen a lot of production in the summer, but I, you know, it rained a bunch of days in a row. It was really cool and rainy. And on those rainy days, like today, the bees are stuck inside. They can't go out. Those flowers are drenched. And, you know, and they also have to keep that honey dry. You know, they're trying to get the moisture content in those cells to like less than 20%. They can't cap it. It's not shelf stable. It's not even, it's not honey. They can't reduce it. And, they do that through, you know, evaporating, through moving air through the hive, through, you know, there's enzymes, there's things in there that, that they're doing to, um, to make it into honey. And they can't, if they get lots of, you know, moisture in there, it'll spoil. It'll turn to mead on them. Um, but I have noticed, um, and, I've, and I've heard a lot of other beekeepers, especially ones in the county where, you know, systemic pesticides are being sprayed. You know, some of these seasons, people have lost all of their bees across the board, you know. Um, I've never had a year like that here in the city. Maybe it's because, especially in this neighborhood and area, there's, I don't see many pesticides being sprayed. I don't see any monoculture anywhere. I see very little landscaping at all, actually. And, um, I mean, I'm sure there's toxins and stuff in Baltimore City, but... Um, but honestly, like, my bees have fared better, better here in sort of central East Baltimore than, than anywhere else, and, um, than Hamden or the other places. So um, I don't know. I think colony collapse and global warming pose threats to bees. But, um, but I think, I mean, I think noise in the city and streetlights is, like, one of the challenges. I wonder how happy those actually make bees those there's other things that aren't more global that are just more local things and a, an aspect of you know trying to keep like a wild animal in the city which i mean they're here if we want them or not i feel like those are stresses as well like there's things like that um it, like when they go out foraging too i mean the stuff they get out of a can of soda um one of the things we don't do at oak hill is is feed our bees um uh, sugar or fructose corn syrup, but bees, bees love to forage. And you know, during dearth, a bee is gonna, you know, is gonna drop down on one of those juice boxes or a, or a Mountain Dew or or a Domino Sugar Factory, and, and it's just gonna get that available 
like that's sugar, and they're going to take that. That's just, I mean, it's equivalent to them, uh, like the same thing when a flower has nectar in it. I feel like some of that stuff probably isn't so good for a hive. Yeah, I'm sure climate change is going to do something. I just, I, I don't see that as much as I do. I hear about other people's, people losing their bees to like pesticides and to certain practices, which, yeah, I'm sure are changing the climate. Milk and honey where they lie. I mean, one of my favorite snacks, I guess it's kind of weird, but is is tahini and honey on toast. It's absolutely beautiful. The bitterness of the of the tahini I find really nice. Um, and then and a little bit of salt uh, is great. And then for a drink, I think you know if you have access to ginger, I think fresh grated ginger and um, and a tablespoon of honey into um, warm water is, is one of the best drinks you can get. I Be careful not to boil it because you still want to keep it raw, so I, I try to make that drink just kind of warm, not too hot. I mean, you can put the ginger in um, while it's really hot and let it cool and then integrate the honey into the drink if you want to keep, keep stuff a little more alive. Um, but yeah, I think those are two really simple. I mean, I like to use honey in a way that the honey, you know, comes through. So they're not, you know, really crazy recipes. Usually the honey is, is sort of sitting on top and you're, you're tasting it more than you're tasting anything else. But um, yeah, I mean, those are two really simple things from a beekeeper uh, to do with honey. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and for WSDL 90.7 FM and WSCL 89.5 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Oh, honey,